Welcome to episode number 10 of the Grab Blogger podcast, where we're helping academics change the world through online business. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. Today's episode, we have an interview with a, a very special person, Maya Gostilla. She's an alumni or with her undergrad from Ohio State University, and she's an incoming PhD student at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, Maya, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you. I'm happy to talk with you. So today we're going through Maya's journey from a, a blogger to a freelance science writer. So I, I really like this path for academics to kind of dip their toes in the water for side hustling, for entrepreneurship. I've actually recommended it to a couple people over the years, and I don't know if anyone's taking me up on the offer, but basically when they say I don't know how to get started and that they want to start their own business but don't know kind of where to start, I ask something like writing and then just say, you know, go check out Upwork and see if there's some job postings there you can apply for. I hadn't done that myself because I'm not actually that great of a writer, turns out. But Maya has done that and is going to share that journey today. So she started her science blog three years ago, which is at alzscience.wordpress.com. And it's all about the science of Alzheimer's disease and brain health. A year ago, we, we were talking through email and she mentioned that a year ago, she used that as sort of a portfolio to launch her side hustle as a, a freelance science writer. And that's kind of the journey that we'll be talking about. She asked, you know, is that sort of a good topic for the listeners of the Grab Blogger podcast? And I, I think I responded with a, an emphatic yes when uh, once he said that, because I, I think from this podcast and this interview, we can really get, get you guys a result. So if you have a blog today, this will show you how you can maybe expand it into something more. If you're interested in freelancing, this is a, you know, a really good way to get started, as I mentioned. So going back to the, the start, Maya, can you maybe shed some light on why you decided to start a science blog in the first place? Yeah, so it definitely kind of like evolved very gradually. Uh, and so kind of I started out, I was in, um, it's called the Junior Committee of the Alzheimer's Association. A lot of cities have these. It's basically just a bunch of like, you know, 20s to 30s year olds uh, who get together once a month and they help to plan events for the association. And they are especially target at like young professionals to get them to come since that, you know, that's kind of a demographic where people don't often care about geriatric diseases. And so we kind of focus on you know, getting young people involved. And my role on that committee was basically the science officer, I think was my official name, which basically means none of the other people on that committee were scientists. And so my job is that I was undergrad at the time, so I wasn't really a scientist per se, but my, I knew how to read scientific papers and kind of translate them just into like normal speech. And so what I would do is during every meeting, whenever, you know, there was a meeting, I would look at whatever had been published related to Alzheimer's disease in the past month. And I would just give like a little synopsis on you know what that meant and like what significance it had whether this might change you know your lifestyle or things like that and people on the committee really liked that they found it very useful they said that you know it wasn't the kind of information they could really get anywhere else it's hard to find and so I ended up basically thinking oh maybe I'll just you know I'll write these synopses also and put them in our email newsletter so the people who didn't come to the meeting can also get them and then someone else said, oh, maybe you should make like a permanent archive on a website of these synopses. So then I did that. And then eventually it just kind of, I realized that like, oh, this is actually a blog that other people are reading who aren't on the committee. And so I kind of just jumped into it by that point. You know, I made like some social media to go with it. And I started actually um, promoting posts and inviting guests, people, you know, guests to post on the site. And it just kind of grew from there. It wasn't really something I set out to do, but it ended up uh, being a super awesome part of my undergrad career and something that I, I still enjoy doing and hope to keep doing throughout grad school as well. 
That's a really cool story. And we turned off the video so we can't see each other, but I have a, a kind of this giant, probably stupid looking smile on my face because that's, that's such a great story. And it's funny because it's, it's almost really different than what I did for dust safety science for my independent research company. But I did the same thing in the terms of the, the medium. I did paper reviews. I'd review them and, and try to, I still kept them in science language, but then I'd take like five of them and stack them together and then take that and try to translate into what it meant for, in my case, for industry. So to the, the real world and real people speak in, in your words. But it's interesting to see that, that kind of we came from two different places maybe, but that we came to one of the same solutions. You're Every day you're reading these papers and the rest of the world would probably like to know them in, in you know, normal words. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, and it was super useful, I found, for me as well, just because it forced me to keep up to date on things that were happening in the field, which as an undergrad, you don't necessarily need to do that. You know, you're not as in-depth on your research yet. So I think it's actually really made me a lot more knowledgeable on the subject as well. Well, and we'll, we'll I'll stop gushing over this as a as a approach in a moment, I promise. But if you, in Google, there's a trick where if you type site colon and your name or the website, Google only turn results on your website. So if you have 40 or 50 papers summarized on your website, by the end of my PhD thesis, I was actually just searching Google through only my website instead of using any paper-based approach to sorting my papers. And I'd pull up my summaries of all the papers and it was like, I don't know, really handy when I was writing my thesis. It was kind of a, a neat process. So so you did that for three years. And I guess the what did you learn over the first couple of years of, of doing that type of blogging? Like, I just want to see what the what the audience well, I really want to encourage the audience to start blogging, I guess. So so what did you learn through that process? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that became clear to me is that even though, you know, at the time I was, I started when I was a sophomore in college, I was certainly not an expert by any means on Alzheimer's and neuroscience in general. But I kind of realized that I am still an expert compared to like 95% of the population. And so like that was kind of important for me because I was very worried about putting this blog out there and having, you know, quote unquote, real scientists come in and say, oh, no, this is wrong. You're not an authority. You have no right to say this or whatever. And of course, that like that never happened. Like no one's going to really come out and do that to you. And even so, you know, most of the topics that I'm writing on, even though I don't even have my PhD yet, I still know way more about Alzheimer's and dementia than just your average person you're going to meet on the street. And so even though I would never at this point in my career, write a blog that's intended for like other scientists necessarily, I would, I think I'm definitely qualified to write a blog that's intended for non-scientists. And I think that's kind of a hill I had to get over with realizing that, you know, I, you don't have to have your PhD yet to, to be able to be a science communicator. And in fact, it, it probably even becomes harder if you start after your PhD, because you've kind of forgotten a little bit how to, how to talk to people who aren't in your field. So that was a big thing that I learned. And then probably the other thing is just how, how fun writing is. Uh, I actually wanted to be a science fiction writer for most of my childhood. And so I've always, you know, I, I kind of just like pushed writing away as I, you know, as I went toward my STEM career, but this kind of reignited how much I love writing and just how cool it is to get to take these high level topics and actually figure out how to make them not just understandable, but actually interesting so that people want to read about it. And so that was really cool. It kind of just like made me remember how, how fun it is and how much, how, how cool it is when other people actually get something useful out of your writing. So that's been really awesome as well. Really cool. I mean, you couldn't have said two, two important, more important things that you don't need to be an expert to do this. And I'm, I'm actually talking via email with a, 
a lady who decided not to do her master's or her PhD, but she wants to do science writing. And she's really, I mean, the, the, the communication we've had so far are right exactly on that topic. She's nervous because she's not an expert. And, and but she's, her field that she's talking to people about isn't even a, a really, it's not necessary. What I tried to explain a bit to her was that imposter syndrome is going to be there. It's, I have it today. For my entire business, I thought somebody's going to call me an idiot and a lightning bolt was going to come strike me out of the air, but it never actually happened. But if that imposter syndrome is going to be there, if you did get your master's, you're just going to you know, be upset that you don't have your PhD. If you do get your PhD, you're going to be upset that you're an introvert instead of an extrovert or an extrovert instead of an introvert. And if you do get that figured out, then there's going to be the next thing. You don't have enough X, Y, or Z. Uh, the imposter syndrome just shifts to the next step, whatever the next step is. So, you know, you don't need to be an expert to get started. It's kind of more important to get started today. Can you take us through the journey a bit? You had this blog you're writing. It, now, the way you've described it doesn't seem like that's such a huge uh, jump to, to being a freelance science writer, but can you talk us through some of that? Yeah, that actually kind of also happened accidentally, as it turns out. And so I had decided pretty early on after I you know, decided this was indeed a blog, I decided I didn't want to monetize the blog itself, at least at this point in my career mainly because of my target audience is considered a vulnerable population to advertising. You know, I mostly am writing for middle-aged to elderly people, and I just did not feel comfortable advertising things that, one, I probably didn't know about. You know, I don't use products targeted toward elderly people. And also, I just, I just didn't feel comfortable. I just, I just felt like kind of seedy. You know, they're going to this website to get information. And I think just for a population that's known to be very susceptible to scams and to marketing, I just, I just wanted to avoid that. I may end up changing in the future if I find a product I really want to promote, but for now, I, I didn't. You know, I'm not doing any advertising or things like that. So later, I, after I had the blog for maybe like two years, someone just reached out to me on Twitter, and he said that he he really liked my blog, and he had a company that was related to Alzheimer's disease. It was like a FinCon company or something, or a fin, fintech company. Uh, financial technology. Yes. And he basically said, uh, you know, I like your writing. Would you be interested in writing for us like really about Alzheimer's and dementia? Like, Because they had a blog, their company as well, which I, I never even occurred to me to act that other people would pay me to write. Like I kind of imagined they would, you know, I would only make money through this blog. I'd never even consider freelance writing as really an option. Um, and so I ended up doing it and I really enjoyed writing for other people as well. And I ended up joining Upwork shortly after that so I could find other people who I wanted to write for. Um, and so I've been doing that for about a year now. And it's been a really great way for me to keep the blog completely demonetized and just kind of, you know, open, I can write whatever I want without worried about advertising. But yeah, I can still use that as kind of a launching point to get clients. And in fact, many of my clients find me through my website and then later go on Upwork to hire me instead of the other way around. So it's been a really great way to kind of indirectly earn money through blogging. That's a really cool story as well. I mean, just hearing the decision not to monetize that website. And I, that's a, that's a personal decision. It's something you can do. I just from talking to you, I think the value that you might be able to deliver to that audience um, in the future, not through advertising other people's products, but through actually helping them might be, might be immense, but you know, this time you're, you're coming into a new P you're starting a PhD program. There's probably a lot going on. You know, you got to make those decisions personally for yourself and, I think that's really important, but the key is that you, you found, well, maybe another way found you, but because you're putting yourself out there, I think that other way found you. Do you have any recommendations on somebody that is interested in doing this, you know, moving on to 
become a freelance science writer or kind of dipping their toes in the water there? Yeah, I definitely would suggest being active on social media. As I said, the first person to reach out to me was through Twitter, and I am fairly active on Twitter. That was also how I found this podcast to be interviewed for. I don't know why, but Twitter seems to be like the main social media that at least people in STEM fields use. Um, but I'm, I feel like if you're just on anywhere, even like LinkedIn, just having a presence and actually interacting with people and just kind of figuring out who is doing cool stuff in your field, that's a great way to find clients and also just build your network. So that's, that's a good one. And the other thing would be, I think when you're first starting out, it can be really helpful to join something like Upwork or one of these other freelancing websites that are out there just because it really helps you to get your foot in the door. Uh, it's harder to get clients when you don't have much of a portfolio yet. Even though I had this blog, um, you know, they sometimes still want to see that you have experience doing paid work for other people instead of just writing whatever you want. And so I think it helps to go on those sites, even though they, they do take a cut of your pay. Um, so I think that kind of scares people sometimes. I think Upwork takes 20% of anything you make. So that, you know, which is a pretty, it's a considerable chunk of your money for sure. But I, I think that when you're first starting out, it can be really valuable just to get as many clients as you can. And then later, if once you've built up enough people, if you want to move away from Upwork and just be completely independent, you could always decide to do that too. Yeah, I agree. And I've, I've never been a hiree on Upwork, but I've, I've hired many, many people, probably on the order of, I would say 10 over the last two or three years for different things, everything from you know, maybe a small logo design to two of my team members are, are started on Upwork and now they, they work outside Upwork with me. So I, I, it's a, it's a great platform for finding people and connecting with people. So yeah, I can't recommend it enough. And, you know, they do take the the cut to 20%, but if you haven't gotten started, 20% of zero is zero. So, and 80% is zero. The, the money you get is also zero. So if you, if you get started there, at least it gives you somewhere an audience that needs people to to do work. So I think that's a you know a great starting place. Another thing I think scares people a bit about Upwork is you go on there, you have to create a profile, you kind of have to put yourself out there a bit, maybe cover letters to jobs. Do you have four or five just tips that you can think of for for being on Upwork and, and getting clients to that platform? Yeah. So honestly I think the biggest thing that took me the longest to figure out is you should charge like way more than you think you should charge, honestly. Um, I think when I started, I was charging literally like $10 an hour or something like that, which after you factor in the Upwork fee and you're also, you know, if you're paying self-employment taxes, if you're in the United States, it's something like 30% of your income also gets taken. So basically I was making, you know, below minimum wage. And my thinking behind that was, okay, I don't have really any experience yet. I need to have really low rates or else nobody will hire me. But actually it's not so much that that's the case. Actually, what happens is you end up getting the clients who have like a really shoestring budget. And those are often the clients that you don't really want to work with. Like they're, you know, they may be kind of disorganized. They don't always know exactly what they want. They may like take a long time to, you know, pay you or to, to respond to your messages. And so like, even though I, I got, you know, plenty of job offers, they weren't that great. And they just weren't worth my time for the amount of money I was making. And so I ended up, you know, pretty dramatically increasing what I charge. Like nowadays I'm more in like the 40 to $50 an hour range and I'll probably end up going higher once I have some more experience. And at, I honestly still get plenty of job offers. You know, people reach out to me. I, I don't even really apply to jobs anymore. I just get emails from people who, who want to hire me. And the clients I get are just so much better quality. You know, they just treat you better. They're often larger companies, which is also nice for networking if you're interested in working for a company eventually. And it, it just has worked out a lot better. So That'd be one tip, but just charge more than you think. Don't undervalue yourself because then, you know, if, you, if your rates are really low, they'll think that you're 
you know, not worth higher pay. So that's the first thing. I, I love it. I wrote down when you, you said, when that was your first recommendation, you said you started with $10. I wrote down wrong people with a question mark. You know, yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask, did you feel like you were getting the wrong clients? Yeah, like honestly, most people who hire at those low of rates are often, they're not companies, they're more just like individual people. And not that there's anything wrong with working for individuals on Upwork, but they often, like just a lot of times, they just don't really know how this works. Like, you know, they made, like I had a couple of people just would like ask for extra work for free. And, you know, they're often, you know, real clients will know what you're worth and they're going to offer that as, as a minimum. So don't be afraid to charge what you're worth. Yeah, I agree. Any tips on profile setup or even just using the platform, like searching for jobs that you want or? Yeah, I think as far as the profile is definitely really important. Um, definitely put a lot of time into that. The Upwork actually has to approve your profile. Um, and a lot of people get, I think I got rejected on the first try. Um, they really want to see like very specific examples of your work. So if you have like a blog to link to, that's a great thing to add. Or even just like a writing sample. They really like to see that kind of thing. I think your photo is honestly really important. Like have a really nice professional photo up there because, you know, that is is the first thing right next to your name. Um, And on that same line, having a good tagline is pretty important too, which is kind of, you know, just a few words to describe what you do. Um, Having that be something that other people are searching for, like almost kind of having like a search engine optimization mindset, putting in words that people will be searching for and also words that would be very unique to you. So like I have things like genetics in my tagline. I don't remember exactly what it is now, but it's, you know, basically all the jobs I get now are specifically for people who want someone to write about either like dementia or genetics, because those are the two areas of experience that I mainly have. So finding your niche is really important there as well. And then in terms of applying for jobs, personally, I don't really worry about having a completely unique cover letter for every job. And that's partly just because I get a decent number of invitations to jobs and that'll you know, usually start happening once you get a few clients, it's kind of a snowball effect. So I would kind of go for quantity over quality, honestly, in this case, uh, most Upwork hire, or most people who hire on Upwork, they don't really spend that much time reading your cover letters. In my experience, they mostly just have very specific questions to ask you. And so I would just say, you know, apply as many as you can when you're first getting started. And don't worry as much about your cover letter as you would for like a real in-person job, just because in my experience, it's not worth putting in hours and hours of work for that. Well, that was a ton. That was a ton of great tips. I, I, some that I've seen, you know, when I'm using the platform as well, I would, I thought of two that I might add. Um, One Upwork does take a big fee, but please don't, as soon as somebody goes to hire you, talk to them in chat and then get them on Skype and then ask them if they can work off Upwork. Because uh, I've had that happen a number of times, and normally I just drop that that person. I have had now three people that I brought off Upwork to work for Dust Safety Science. Two of them are still team members. One's been there for two years, and now the other one's been there almost a year actually since April last year. You know, after we did a couple of projects together and and worked through things, then it was great to bring them off, and and that, that we've actually you know given them raises and, and different things. Um, and these are. Well, one's offshore and then the other one is actually in Ontario here. So that's one thing that I find, you know, it was, was kind of turning me off because I'd, I'd get people on the phone. The first thing is, you know, they didn't want to discuss the project. It's like, can we get off Upwork and, and do this? So I'd recommend maybe not doing that. At least I found it was a little bit difficult. And the other one is I actually, I agree with the cover letters. Don't waste time writing those out, but do read the job description. I would normally, I'm posting something that I think will get a lot of, people responding i put like a trick in it like 
respond with a three K. Well, that was a bad example. Respond with three C's at the top of your cover letter or something just kind of silly, but something to just make sure that they're not spam bots and that they're not doing too crazy. So that allows me to then take 50 applications and, you know, get them down to 20 pretty quickly without having to read anything. So those would be two tips I'd kind of add to the, the mix to check out. Yeah. And as far as going off of Upwork, I'll add to that. I do often end up going off of Upwork with clients, but first of all, I, I don't usually even want to do that for my first job with them just because Upwork has certain protections built in. Like if a client doesn't pay you or whatever, you know, they have things that'll make sure that you get your money. Um, and so at least for the very first job, I always want to do it through Upwork just so I can make sure that this is a trustworthy person who is actually going to pay me. And then, yeah, I usually will wait for the client to ask if I would like to go off Upwork. I don't usually propose that myself, or I might just simply, you know, ask for a rate increase just, you know, to cover that 20% that they're taking off. So yeah, while it is something that's possible, I wouldn't like jump into it super quickly. Yeah, I agree. And and that's like the exact thing. You want to build a relationship and then move from there. I mean, it gets complicated, right? As soon as you jump off Upwork, then we have to decide how we're going to pay. If you're going to send a PayPal invoice and we're going to pay via credit card or pay via bank transfer, whatever it's going to be. It's just, it adds like a, another layer of friction at the very start of the relationship, you know, is, is going to lose you some jobs. Maybe you make net more money. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't ran the numbers from that side, but if you want to get good clients, I'd recommend trying to get a good relationship and then, you know, try to get somebody they're going to be with them for, for the long haul year, two years, three years. Then who cares what the 20% in the, in the first job, right? Yeah, definitely. Very cool. So um, that was pretty deep in Upwork. And I, I have a list here of at least 12 tips or something that, that we kind of pulled out of that. So that's great. Besides, you know, besides the the freelance writing that kind of came out of this and, and doing that as a side hustle, was there any other expected things that came out of starting your blog and going through this, this path of communicating science online? Yeah, I think the thing that I didn't expect was that this was actually super helpful to me in grad school applications. I actually had, I think, like, probably two or three people in my interviews, like, say that they have read my blog, which was, like, amazing. First of all, I didn't think any faculty were reading the blog, to be honest, but it was just amazing. And it was just kind of a conversation starter. And um, I think that I, I must have been helpful in getting through those interviews, you know, having something, you know, to show that I, I know what I'm talking about, that I know how to read papers and communicate them in a really deep way. So I would definitely encourage undergrads to think about having a science blog if you're considering graduate school. I think it's looked upon really well, especially if you actually have it kind of connected to your, you know, your Twitter and your LinkedIn and everything, have it connected with, with you personally. And then the other thing that's been really great is the network that it's helped me to build. You know, I, I work with scientists, so I, you know, I hang out with a lot of scientists and I'm connected with them, but it's kind of really opened up this whole new world of science communicators and, you know, podcasters, YouTubers, bloggers, who all have this kind of common goal of making science accessible to non-scientists and helping them to navigate this world where there's all kinds of people, you know, who may be trying to take advantage of them and give them false information online. And so it's been really cool to just meet all these people, you know, virtually for the most part, but in some cases too, also, you know, I've, I actually add interviews. Also, I ran into a couple of people that I knew from Twitter who I talked about science communication with. And so that was something that I think was really cool for me and I, I you know I'm looking forward to getting more involved with that group more in the future too oh that's awesome I those are you know great outcomes and the the network's a big thing it's now rare that I travel and I don't at least grab a coffee with somebody that 
I know virtually, like I'm trying to think of, you know, just, just people I know on Twitter that I'm in communities with, or that, you know, I know of a podcast or in my space or whatever. I'm actually traveling to San Diego in late July. Um, so maybe we can grab a, a coffee there at some point too. That's it. You know, that just shows how, how it, how it goes. So normally I travel now it's, it's, I try to find somebody in my network that I can sit down, you know, grab by deed or something. It's, it's a really big way to grow your network. And I, I can't agree with that more. So I think, you know, I think that might be a good place to end off this episode. Is there any kind of one big thing you want to leave the listeners with? So these are, you know, these are academics that are thinking about starting a business and, you know, what we're about here is doing it in a way that you can really change the world. So these things like false information and, and overcoming that things like helping groups that are underserved. Um, those are all really important topics for, for grab blogger. Is there any kind of one big thing you want to leave, leave that audience with? Uh, I think I would say that, you know, the thing to realize about blogging is it can be really whatever you want it to be. If you just want to have a demonetized, completely independent blog where you write whatever you want, like that is completely fine. That's an acceptable use of your time. And it's, it's still going to be very beneficial to you and to your readers as well. Um, you know, if you're not directly making any money off of it, or if you want to, you know, start a side hustle like I did and do freelancing, or if you want to make this your entire full-time job and start a business, those are all types of science communication. And they're all really, really great things to be involved with. So I think don't necessarily, you know, be afraid if, if you want to just be a scientist and you don't want to be a science communicator as your whole career that's completely okay. You don't, you don't need to choose one over the other necessarily. You, you can have both things. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Really, that's a really great way to, to end off. I did want to mention so that in late July uh, in San Diego, and then even earlier in that in June, either in Waterloo or Toronto, Ontario, Toronto or Waterloo in Ontario, um, we haven't actually released this publicly, but we're going to be doing some meetups for Grablogger. Uh, I don't know if this is going to be an event. I don't know if we're going to get speakers in the presentation, or if it's just going to be a, you know, grab a grab a beer at a at a bar or something. But if people are interested in that, as this podcast episode comes out, it'll be coming out, um, I think, late May. But when that comes out, if you're interested, definitely stay tuned on social media. If you're in those areas, um, we're going to try to get a, a couple people from the community together, at least to talk about building business. So that'll be something to stay tuned for. For this episode specifically, as always, you can get the transcripts at grabblogger.com slash 10, number 10 for this episode. And we'll put together a, a tip sheet from all these kind of brainstorming ideas from, from getting your profile together on Upwork, how to find a job, how to hire. And we'll put that in the in the show notes as well, and you can download that there. So Maya, I just want to say thank you again. This has been you know really informative to me to see the other side. I did mention I've done a lot of hiring on Upwork. Um, at one point, I had seven writers with Dust Safety Science, and which, which is, uh, I did that on purpose. I want to load the website up with about 100 posts in two months. Um, but trying to manage seven people writing, and I was writing myself too, so we had eight, a team of eight, eight writers was was a little ridiculous. Um, but we brought that down to just myself and another on the team now. But it's good to see the other side. You know how how can people become a freelance science writer? How can you use your blog to you know, do whatever you want to do. If it's if it's just pure science communication, if it's building an independent research company, if it's helping with your scholarship applications, helping with your, your PhD applications, those are all viable ways to go. So I appreciate you sharing. And I hope to, like I said, once I get into San Diego in late July, hopefully we can, we can grab a, a bite to eat or something there. 
For sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And if any of your listeners have or ha- ever have any questions or just want someone to bounce ideas off of, especially, you know, if they're undergrads who are getting into this, they can feel free to reach out to me. My, my Twitter is the same as my website. It's just ALZ science. So, you know, feel free. If anyone has questions, just let me know. Certainly. Yeah. The website again is also ALZ science wordpress.com um, and we'll put links in the show notes to that my also has a personal website so we'll we'll throw that up there as well if, uh, and actually well if she wants we'll put her her I'll, I'll leave it up to her we can put her work profile listing on there as well <laughs> awesome well thanks my I really appreciate it and we will be talking soon great thank you